Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Welcome back to this episode of BFR Radio, and this is episode number two in a short mini-series on the use of BFR in relation to sports performance or sports performance outcomes. And if you remember in the previous episode, I said that the Olympics inspired me on this short little mini-series here. At the time, I was actually in Cairns with the Australian track and field team. Within that team, I worked with three athletes, Riley Day, who ran a massive PB in the women's 200 metres, and the two decathletes, Cedric Dubler and also Ash Maloney. Now, Ash Maloney won a bronze medal which is the best ever result for an Australian in an Olympics for the decathlon. And also Cedric Dubler, who there were some really great images of him encouraging Ash on to ensure that Ash got home in the correct time or close enough to his other competitors to ensure that he secured that bronze medal. And in that event, Cedric unfortunately fouled out in the pole vault, which means that you have three attempts if you get three misses on that one height is that you're usually out of the competition and it's just too many points to make up over 10 events. But what is even more significant, which was amazing and I allude to something potentially pretty special in the previous episode, was that I'm not sure if anyone knew, but about two and a half to three weeks prior to the start of the competition, Cedric tore his hamstring, a grade two medial hamstring and there's actually a little bit of tendon involvement as well. Now, Typically, when we rehab a hamstring, it's four to six weeks, and more so six weeks plus when we're talking about track and field athletes because of the velocities that they've got to sprint at. Now, what he was able to do was he actually got back to 95% of his maximum speed within 11 days. That's right, within 11 days. And also within two weeks, or he actually started the competition and he actually competed comparatively to his personal best. Now, he wasn't in the best shape he's ever been in because he just hadn't done the work and potentially didn't have the confidence in most events. For example, he did a PB in the shot put. He threw close to a season's best in the discus. His 100-meter time, which his season's best was 10.84, he ran a 10.95, so really close to some of his best performances. Now, how do we get him back within two weeks, which is just phenomenal, aside from good rest, having good physiotherapists, good nutrition, and just being able to focus on training and recovering? I absolutely used BFR to its fullest extent in relation to this rehab. There's been a lot of articles that I've reviewed around improvement in anabolic hormones, improvement in stem cell proliferation, improvement in muscle repair, decreasing in pain, improvement in recovery. And I used it three to four times a day, whether it was activating the correct musculature prior to strength or running sessions, whether it was to be used in between sessions to help with recovery, whether we used it with upper body when he couldn't train his lower body in that really initial acute phase. I really maximized all the activation of the different pathways that potentially could have helped. And I really can't explain how we did it any quicker. Some say that medial hamstrings, potentially you can run quicker on them than other hamstring injuries. 
but this guy competed at an elite level at Olympics in just over two weeks. So it was really amazing. And perhaps if you want to hear this a little bit more, I'll put this into a podcast. So please do let me know. So that was really exciting for me. So well done to Cedric for believing in the process and perhaps believing in that a lot of work needs to be done and that it can be done within two weeks. Back on to the miniseries. And once again, this was inspired by the Olympics. And really, when you look at it, traditionally, a lot of BFR studies focus solely on its response to strength or cardiovascular training. BFR can actually be used across a multitude of different uses and can be practically applied within the sporting training session. In academic studies, there's a need to strip away all of the other training elements to try and highlight whether it is truly the use of BFR that has the effect or not. However, putting it into the real world, sporting and training and competition environment, we still need to include all of the elements that are required for elite performance. Pretty much a bit like Cedric in that there's a lot of things at play in that two-week period that would have led to his recovery. As I said, good treatment, nutrition, using the game ready for icing and compression, but we can't be academic all the time. And, and that's what I like about these studies that I'm going to be talking about. The concepts that I'm going to discuss here is that I want you to focus on and ask yourself, how can I include this into my current training setup to enhance the training and competition response? And it may only be two to three sessions a week and of small volume in comparison to the whole training week, but the inclusion of BFR in specific ways may help to enhance the training response that you're looking for. Reflecting on the first episode, it looked at comparing small-sided futsal games with and without BFR. The addition of the BFR highlighted positive benefits over not wearing them. And with many pathway activations associated with BFR use, I do see the benefit in the inclusion of BFR to multiple sports in this manner. This reminds me of a story of a colleague who worked in rugby union. They would do off-feet conditioning, which is when you're doing conditioning that doesn't consist of running on the ground and hence off-feet. And this consisted of a superset of bike sprints and controlled wrestling drills on the ground. During a block of this type of training, the BFR cuffs were included when the athletes did the bike sets. And the comments were from the players that the added metabolic stress was as close to the fatigue experience when playing. We would traditionally look at perhaps doing that superset of bike sprints and the wrestling drills, but it's really hard to mimic in respect to rugby union that up, down, the heavy grounds, the contact, someone laying on you, that metabolic stress that sometimes we just can't create with just those two things of the bikes and the wrestling. So here that BFR added that metabolic stress that we wouldn't have been able to get if we didn't use it at all. And as I was prepping for this article, I was reading a study of the inclusion of BFR training in the sport of Taekwondo. And I thought, oh, this is going to be absolutely perfect. But as I got halfway through, I realized that it focused on general BFR training with Taekwondo athletes, but not doing specific Taekwondo training. Therefore, I thought I'd save it for another day and stick to reviewing articles that used BFR whilst performing the actual sporting movement. Anyway, so this is kind of a take two for this episode, and it's something that most of us can do, and it's called the effect of muscle blood flow restriction during running training on measures of aerobic capacity and run time to exhaustion. The primary author is Carl Payton and comes out of the Institute of Technology, Napier, in New Zealand.
Currently, I would say that the majority of BFR studies that we are familiar with is resistance training based. There are some cardiovascular studies as well. However, most of these involve using a stationary bike or walking. The potential to improve VO2 max in BFR aerobic based studies definitely holds interest. For example, in a previous BFR radio podcast episode, I reviewed an article that highlighted that 15 minutes of low intensity cycling, that's at around 40% of VO2 max with BFR, resulted in a 6% increase in maximal oxygen uptake and a 15% increase in time to exhaustion, whereas little change occurred in the control group, despite their considerably greater training volume. Previous studies have used various methods to induce BFR, including blood pressure cuffs, pneumatic tourniquets, and even specialist CATSU devices, which may possibly induce different levels of occlusion. Furthermore, all these occlusion methods commonly require specialist equipment They may be impractical for regular training, particularly during certain sporting activities, such as running. In an attempt to overcome some of the complications associated with implementing BFR during training, Several studies have utilized elastic muscle wraps, which is called practical BFR. As such, there are quite a few practical BFR studies that have shown an improved training response compared to training without BFR. Although I would perhaps prefer to know the pressure that I'm inflating the cuffs that I'm training with, that there are so many great studies out there, whether it's using the, the ones that have the tubes connected to it permanently, whether it's uh, systems which you can inflate, it has a gauge and you can take the pump and the tubes off. And there's also practical BFR where they're using the RP of 7 out of 10 to understand if there's enough pressure. And look, all three have shown great results with respect to the, the training or the study outcomes. And really it comes down to what you're comfortable with as a coach and also, will it allow you to actually do the movements that you truly want to do? And this study here is using those elastic muscle wraps with respect to BFR. And the aim of the study was to compare the effect of four weeks of running training with or without a practical BFR methodology on aerobic capacity and other measures associated with running performance. In this study, 16 subjects, 10 males and 6 females participated. They were classified as recreational, participating in sporting or physical activities for approximately two to four hours per week. They all had to be familiar with treadmill running and could not commence any other new exercise regime during the study period. Prior to and following the training intervention, the subjects completed a series of tests. The first test was a maximal incremental test on a treadmill, commencing at five kilometers per hour and increasing by one kilometers per hour each minute until total fatigue. Peak running velocity was determined as the highest running speed completed for a full one minute duration plus the appropriate portion of any partially completed stage. The VO2 max was collected. This was the highest 30 seconds oxygen uptake value recorded during the incremental test. During the incremental test. Running economy was determined using the oxygen response recorded breath by breath. Following the incremental test, subjects completed 15 minutes of passive recovery before commencing a high-intensity time-to-exhaustion run. Subjects were required to run for as long as possible at their previously determined incremental test peak running velocity. Both pre- and post-training, time-to-exhaustion runs were performed at the same peak running velocity achieved during the pre-testing sessions. On completion of the pre-testing, the subjects were randomly assigned to either a BFR or a control, that's a non-BFR group, and they then completed four weeks of identical training, with the exemption that the BFR group 
used the practical elastic wrap occlusion procedure. Training was carried out twice weekly at the same time of day for each subject and with at least two days of rest in between sessions. After warm-up, the treadmill speed was maintained at 80% of each individual peak running velocity, and the training sessions required subjects to complete repeated bouts of 30-second efforts interspersed with 30 seconds of passive rest, during which they straddled the treadmill belt. The initial training session consisted of two sets of five repetitions, that's a total of 10 repetitions. Thereafter, the total volume of training was increased progressively by two minutes, and that was equivalent to two repetitions. That's 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off per session, until the final session of three sets of eight repetitions for a total of 24 reps. Between each exercise set, subjects in both training groups rested for 150 seconds, primarily to allow a brief that was around 60 seconds break from wearing the wraps in the BFR cohort. And this also allowed adequate time for the re-wrapping. Participants also wore a heart rate monitor where the mean heart rate achieved across all completed exercise sets, not including rest periods, was used in the final data analysis. Just briefly, a little bit around the BFR method. Elastic wraps of 75 millimeter width were wrapped on the upper thigh. The wrap pressure was increased until the subjects reported a perceived pressure of 7 out of 10, which was moderate but pain-free pressure. And this is actually quite a commonly accepted method for practical BFI. A quick note about the statistics used, and I typically don't go into this in the study reviews to keep it brief, but apart from using T-statistics, effect size statistics was used. And without getting bogged down into stats, the effect size can actually be a great way to inform people of the practical importance of the research findings. Sometimes research findings may not be significant or highly significant, but whereas using effect size, you can have a large effect size where there's a strong relationship between the two variables. In this case, it would be the relationship between the running test outcome and the other being the intervention, BFR or no BFR. And typically, effect sizes are classed as small, moderate, and large effects. And this now brings us on to the results. In this paper, the table of results reported on the absolute magnitude of change that occurred within the BFR and control group. For the sake of the podcast, I actually worked out the percentage change, and that's my personal preference, and I feel due to the data being presented as a group average, it highlights the changes better. But once again, my personal preference. Comparing the pre to post test results, the BFR group reported small effect size increases in VO2 max, that was 6.3%. Running economy also showed a small improvement in effect size in the BFR group, and that was 6.7%. With respect to the high-intensity time-to-exhaustion treadmill test, a large effect size increase was shown with the length of time that they could run until exhaustion, and that was 25%, whereas small effect sizes were reserved for peak running velocity at 4.3% and the incremental runtime 6.2%. When we look at the non-BFR control group, the percentage change from pre-to-post test was considerably less where they observed a small increase in VO2 max at 3.8%. Now, remembering in the BFR group, it was 6.3%, and a moderate increase in the time to exhaustion in that non-BFR group at 167 whereas they showed a 25% increase in the BFR group. Once again, just highlighting that increase effect with the addition of the BFR cuffs. Although from a statistical viewpoint, there was no significant differences in the change scores 
between BFR and non-BFR group, the effect size indicated a small additional enhancement in all measurements, except VO2 max, in favor of the BFR group. What this is saying is that although we saw bigger increases in the BFR group after the training intervention compared to the non-BFR group, when we compare the changes or the improvements in just those post measurements, there was a small additional enhancement in favor of the BFR group. Analysis of the mean training heart rate data across all training sessions indicated that the BFR group trained at a significantly higher percentage of their maximum heart rate than the control group, equivalent to a large observed effect size. Overall, the key findings was that the use of the BFR appears to increase exercise heart rate and led to small additional enhancements in several physiological and functional measurements in comparison to performing the same training without BFR. Alongside the increased exercise heart rate, the study findings showed similar increases in VO2 max in both the BFR and control training groups after the training period. There was a trend towards a greater increase in VO2 and BFR at 6.4% compared to the control group, which had only a 4% increase. The increase in VO2 max seen in the BFR group is consistent once again with other BFR studies and is similar to a 5.6% increase after repeated sessions of BFR low-intensity cycle training, as I mentioned briefly at the start of the podcast. These other studies, however, reported no increases in VO2 max in their control groups. A probable explanation for the difference between the control subjects in this study is the intensity of the exercise performance. For example, the intensity of the running in this study was 80%, compared to approximately 40% VO2 max in the cycling study. And that's really one thing we must remember when we're training our athletes or when we want to get a true response with well-trained athletes is that we do need some higher level of intensity. Overall, it appears that performing high-intensity training with the addition of BFR provides only a small additional benefit in VO2, despite causing increases in heart rate when exercise intensity is already high enough to substantially tax the cardiovascular system. In my opinion, any additional benefit that we can be getting is something that we should be considering. While the VO2 max increased in both groups, peak running velocity and the accompanying incremental test time increased by a large amount in the BFR group compared to the non-BFR group. A possible explanation by the authors was that for the greater increases in peak running velocity in incremental runtime in the BFR group, this may be related to the gains in running economy observed. The improvement in running economy would potentially allow an athlete to achieve a higher maximal running speed for the same relative oxygen consumption. It is likely that the improvement in running economy witnessed in the BFR group occurred as a result of local muscular adaptations rather than cardiovascular changes. Specifically, the authors hypothesized that an increase in muscle strength may have led to the improved running economy. And this sits well with other BFR studies that have shown improvements in strength whilst performing aerobic-based activities. The time to exhaustion in the high-intensity run increased substantially in both training groups with the addition of BFR demonstrating an enhancement of approximately 8% over the non-BFR group. As the intensity of the time to exhaustion test was essentially greater than VO2 max, a large portion of the test would rely on anaerobic capabilities and the ability to withstand local muscle fatigue. 
Other studies reported training with BFR leads to a significant decrease in the rate of lactate appearance during incremental exercise. Alternatively, it's also possible that it increased ability to withstand local metabolic disturbances caused by increased levels of muscle and blood lactate experience during BFR training. If we remember the last podcast around using BFR in small-sided futsal games, they actually spoke about this concept, is that they were actually able to withstand the production of the blood lactate in the muscles with the activity, and they were actually able to improve lactate clearance over time, and as a result, being able to withstand the higher intensities of the requirements of futsal training, or in this case here, they're actually able to withstand the increase in the time to exhaustion over that non-BFR group. As training with BFR reduces local muscle oxygen availability, this actually may have led to an earlier recruitment of type 2 muscle fibers during training and a corresponding increase in lactate production. Therefore, it is possible that the BFR group experienced increases in muscle buffering capacity due to their longer exposure to higher lactate levels during the BFR training. And this is very similar to the point in the last podcast when they used BFR during three-a-side futsal training is that they had higher exposures or longer exposures in the BFR group during the three-a-side games to higher lactate levels. And actually, just simply, they got used to it and they had a massive training adaption from it. And, and this is what the point that they're trying to make here is that you have less oxygen available, you have a recruitment of type 2 muscle fibers, and you have an increase in that lactate production, and your body actually gets used to it. So it improves that muscle buffering capacity. And therefore, when you do the time to exhaustion, because you're running at a high intensity, you're actually able to, to withstand it for a lot longer period. And this really comes to that next point is that from a simplistic point of view, training with BFR can be perceived to be a lot harder. As a result, the subjects in the BFR group got used to this and therefore are able to perform or tolerate better in that post-test. And further this, in my experiences as a coach, recreational athletes aren't accustomed to pushing themselves hard compared to elite athletes or not as much. It is this increase in training stress that helps to create the training adaptation. The addition of BFR immediately creates this increase in total system stress that potentially elicited the improved response at the post-test. For me, this is a great practical use of BFR in applied setting. The transfer of this to general or recreational athletes is simple. Understanding if this has benefit in elite athlete population is a little more difficult. However, if we actually refer back to the rowing study I reviewed, and this was elite rowers used BFR during their low-intensity rowing sessions, they actually showed an improvement in physiological and performance parameters. I do think that this could be used as a way to improve the weekly training schedule, in particular that more low-intensity work, referred to as sometimes with runners as junk miles. If you're going to train at low intensity, i.e. low mechanical stress, why don't we improve the physiological response with the addition of BFR or with the addition of metabolic stress? To me, it makes sense. And that's where we'll leave today's episode. And it'll be great to hear from anyone that's tried this or would like to chat further about how to use this for your own running training. And the next episode, we're actually going to get off the land and hop into the water and look at how we can use BFR to improve swimming performance. A couple of favors from me to you. If you know of someone who would benefit from this episode, please share it. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please give it a ratings on iTunes. And if you're interested in purchasing your own set of BFR cuffs, please visit my website, which is sportsrehab.com.au. And I can also help you with your training. So contact me via my website or DM me through my socials, which is at Chris Gavilio. Thanks for listening. See you next episode. And remember to keep the pump.